Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see it filled in a little bit since it's uh, 10.30, I think, from uh, folks uh, shoveling out and getting their way here. But looking forward to jumping back into the scriptures. You may notice there's a, a new... Uh, Something right here in front of me. Um, so I'm grateful for this new manger scene and uh, thankful really to the sparings. It's beautiful. So if you get a chance after the service, come, come take a look at it too. All right. Sure, let's give a round of applause. Thank you. So John chapter 1, verses 14 to 28. John chapter 1, 14 to 28. Last week we started John 1. Uh, today we're going to look at pointing people to Jesus. Pointing people to Jesus, Jesus who shows us God, who shows us the Father. Uh, we started a new series, Advent series, just for these uh, four weeks on John 1, Jesus in the flesh. And uh, we started last week looking at the beginning of the story of Jesus' life. Actually, if you know your Bibles, there's four stories, there's four Gospels that tell the story of Jesus' life. They don't contradict one another, they kind of overlap. Uh, at different points, and they complement one another, not rather than contradict. Well, this is John, the fourth one. Uh, he begins by describing Jesus as the Word. And very briefly last week, he mentions John the Baptist. Well, today, we're going to sort of zero in on John the Baptist. Um, he's a good example of someone who is always pointing to Jesus. Um, pointing away from himself and pointing to Jesus. Another way to put that is John is not about John. (laughs) John the Baptist is not about John the Baptist. He was about Jesus. In fact, I'm not so sure what John would think about us focusing on him. He might say, don't focus on me, focus on Jesus, which is exactly why I feel comfortable focusing on him, (laughs) if that makes any sense. You don't want to focus on someone who's constantly looking for all the focus to be on themselves. But John is a great example to us of someone who points to Jesus. Look to him. He's where grace and truth and happiness and joy and eternal life and salvation. He's where all these good things come from. Not me, uh, but him. Point to people, point people to Jesus who shows us God. We're going to read 14 to 28. It should be up on the screen. And of course, there's a pew Bible if you're someone who wants to read it straight out of, the, out of the book there in front of you. John chapter 1, verses 14 to 28. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are you? He confessed, and He did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked Him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? 
John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Point people to Jesus who shows us God. And there's an outline in your bulletin as always. Uh, if you want to take notes or just kind of see where we're going. But the first point, point people where they can find grace and truth, 14 to 18. And then point people away from us and other unsatisfying sources, uh, 19 to 21. Then we're going to look at uh, point people to Jesus by being a witness of the gospel, 22 to 23. And finally, let baptism and other church stuff point people to Jesus, 24 to 28. So look at 14 to 18. Point people where they can find grace and truth. Where they can find grace and truth. Jesus is where we find grace and truth. And truth. He describes here him here as the Word in the flesh. So we remember, may remember last week, those who were here last week, Jesus is the Word of God. So God reveals Himself. He wants to be known to His people, to us. And throughout the Old Testament, He does that through His Word, through the prophet. In fact, He creates the world, what? By His Word. Let there be light. Well, that Word, as we learn right here in 14, took on flesh, <laughs> uh, became human. Uh, personified in the, in the literal sense, became a human being. And not just a body, like a puppet, but an actual full human being, the flesh, full humanity. Uh, the word became flesh, and it says, and dwelt among us, that he lived with us. Actually, the word there literally means he tabernacled among us, he tented, he pitched his tent and set up his tent and lived in our midst, is the idea behind it. And that brings to mind the Old Testament uh, where God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle. As they're traveling throughout the wilderness, they set up the tabernacle, and there God's presence is with his people as they travel. So here he's saying, Jesus is God in the flesh, tabernacled among us. And we have seen, as it says here, His glory, glory as of the only Son. Uh, the glory of God is the presence of God, the Shekinah glory. Uh, so it was kind of revealed by light in, in the Old Testament. But here, uh, Jesus Himself bears the very glory of God as He's in the presence of His people. And He's described here as the Son from the Father. Uh, this is, when we describe Jesus as the Son, that's more than just an image. So we've talked about Jesus as the Word. We've talked about Jesus as the light of the world. Those are sort of images, symbolism to describe who Jesus is in relation to us. But when we see Jesus as the Son, that goes kind of beyond really a symbol. That is really who He is in His very nature in relation to the Father. He is the Son eternally of the Father. And God the Father is eternally His Father. We learn here in verse 15, John bears witness about him. We're going to look more at John in just a bit. But John describes him, him who was before me. Now, if you know a little bit about the, the gospel, uh, John is older than Jesus by a few months. So he doesn't mean he was before me, he's older than me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he was before me, meaning eternally before me. He, he ranks above me and he existed eternally before me. But he describes Jesus as the one we receive uh, grace and truth from. He's full of grace and truth. Verse 14, uh, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And there are different translations of the Bible here. Some may say grace upon grace or grace even grace or something like that. Um, really the idea is grace instead of grace. Uh, the word is anti. Uh, grace, anti-grace. Grace in the place of grace. Now what does he mean by that? 
uh, we've already seen, explains it in verse 17, we've already received grace with the giving of the law. So think of the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, the Torah. That was God's grace. The, the law itself is a good thing, not a bad thing. It's God revealing His character. It's God revealing uh, what a life that would please Him. Uh, it's revealing the very nature of who God is, what He desires for us as human beings. The law itself is good. It's, it's, it's an act of God's grace for Him to reveal Himself through the law. The problem with the law is that it can't save us. <laughs> that... that it can't actually redeem us because we can't obey it. Uh, I mean, anyone here that thinks they can obey all ten of the commandments for their entire life without breaking one of them, I want to talk to you after the, <laughs> after the service. And we can decide whether you really haven't broken any of them, even in the heart of those laws. So what does God do? He gives us grace instead of grace. So grace over and above the grace that we've already received. That grace is Jesus he describes Jesus in verse 18. One more thing. No one has ever seen God. <laughs> and he sees that as sort of an axiomatic truth. You cannot see God. Uh, but why? Because God is not physical. Uh, God is not material. He's not made of matter. He doesn't exist within this universe. So your eyes and its reflection and its uh, refraction can't actually behold a spiritual God. <laughs> it's impossible. In fact, we see this throughout Scripture uh, in different places. Uh, for example, John 6, later on in the same gospel, everyone has heard uh, and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he was from God. He has seen the Father, meaning himself. You can't see the Father. Colossians 1.14, describing Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. God has no image. Uh, he's invisible. You can't see him. So Jesus is the image of that invisible God. In 1 Timothy 1, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. God cannot be seen. So what's the point? Verse 18, the only God who is at the Father's side, who is that? Jesus, he has made him known. So though we can't see him with our eyes, we can know him, particularly through Jesus. Not because Jesus looks physically like, his, like God the Father, uh, but that the way he acts, his love, his self-sacrifice, his compassion, his grace. All of that reveals to us who God really is. Though God can't be seen, he is, in a sense, seen in the life of Jesus. Friends, we receive grace and truth from him. Uh, what are grace and truth? What is he talking about here? Uh, these are huge, important concepts. Uh, in fact, they are all throughout the Old Testament when it describes who God is. He's the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's who God is. He's gracious and He's true. They're huge throughout the Bible and they're central to the whole message of Christianity. In fact, if you take grace and truth out of the Christian faith, you don't have the Christian faith anymore. You just have a shell. <laughs> That's how important. These are so central to what we're about. What are grace and truth? First, what is truth? Uh, truth? I remember when I was in college, this is one of those dormitory debates you have, you know, what is truth? How can you define truth? And uh, we, we, you know, discussed it for a while, and this is what we came up with, and actually, I think it's the best definition of truth. Uh, it, we're not the ones who really made it up. We just came up with it and then realized that people have been saying this for probably centuries and centuries. But truth is that which is. That's the truth. If it is, if that's reality, then what you say about it is true. If you're speaking about something that is not, then you're lying, and it's not true. <laughs> what, 
When Jesus speaks, everything that he says is true. More than that, he himself is described as the truth. The one who really embodies true reality and salvation for us. In fact, the devil, in contrast to that, is described as what? The father of lies. The one who constantly speaks what is deceptive and dishonest. Jesus is the truth. And all truth comes ultimately from him because he's the creator of all that is. What is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's the blessing of God. It's God's smile upon us, in a sense. It's his forgiveness towards us. It's his mercy. It's his willingness to redeem us and make us his own, to adopt us, as we looked at last week, that we're given the right to become children of God. It's the hope of eternal life in him. It's all that he grants us that is good comes from his grace. Friends, we we point people to Jesus because that's where you find these things. (laughs) That's where you find grace and truth. Uh, Christians, in, in, in John the Baptist, we don't, we, don't, we don't have grace and truth to give people. We can only point people to where they can find actual grace and truth. I mean, that, in fact, that's the role of a Christian, right? We're, we're saying, I, I, I'm thirsty, and I've found water. <laughs> I've found an oasis to drink from, spiritually speaking. And I'm going to tell people, that's where you can find drink. <laughs> right there is where there's spiritual water. I, can, I, don't, I can't give you water, but I can point in the direction of where there is grace and where there is truth. You know, Christians are not, not, they don't draw people because they're the, the coolest, all right? Although there are, there are cool Christians, <laughs> you know, I, guess, I hope. Um, they don't draw people because they're the most successful people on the planet. Uh, if you took a, a, a smattering of all the most successful people on the planet, I would guess some would be Christians, some would be non-Christians, and that's not the draw for the Christian faith. Uh, they don't draw people because they're the smartest, <laughs> And now there have been some extremely intelligent Christians throughout history. Some of the brightest scientists, some of the brightest philosophers, whatever you want to say. And then there have been people who are uh, just everyday or people uh, even who are even little kids are drawn to Jesus. They're not drawn because they're the smartest. They're not drawn uh, because they're the coolest. Uh, They're not drawn because they're the most successful. They're people who point to where grace and truth can come from. The one where real life and the source of all that is good comes from. Friends, people need grace. (laughs) They need grace. They need forgiveness. They need love. They need mercy. They're searching for it. And we have the source and we point people where grace and truth comes from. And people need truth, friends. People all over the world are searching for truth. They're, They're pursuing reality, trying to understand what this life is really all about. And in Christ is where we find real truth. I think of that song, good, You're a Good, Good Father, we sing all the time. I've seen many searching far and wide, but I know we're all searching for answers only you provide. Because you know just what we need before we say a word. This is where we find real, true truth. Good <laughs> news for you, friends, if this is uh, something you haven't realized, Christians are not perfect. <laughs> and we sin often. And we say really stupid things. <laughs> but we do believe we've found the source of grace and truth. And our desire is not to say, believe me because I'm so believable. 
but come and check out this oasis I found in Jesus. He's the one where all grace and truth come from. Point people away from us. Point people away from us and other unsatisfying sources. Looked at 19 to 21. This is the testimony of John. So we're talking here again, not about John, the writer and author of this gospel, uh, but John the Baptist, uh, a man who, as far as we know, didn't write anything down, uh, at least anything that we have today. But John the Baptist, uh, he's out there, and uh, there's a group sent to him, it says here, from the Jews. Uh, And you might hear that and say, from the Jews? I thought they're all Jews. So Jesus was Jewish, John the Baptist is Jewish, all of his apostles were Jewish. How can they be sent from the Jews? Well, John, the gospel writer, uses that, way, that word in different ways. Here it refers to the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders send a sort of delegation to John the Baptist to figure out who he is and what he's doing. Uh, he's become sort of famous uh, throughout all of Israel. And so these Jewish leaders, they're called the Sanhedrin, they want to check into this. So they send a, a group to say, go find out who this guy out in the wilderness uh, that everybody keeps flocking out to. Who is this guy? And they come up to him, and he clarifies right away, I am not the Christ. Now, maybe you thought Christ was Jesus' last name. Uh, That's not how it works. Uh, Jesus uh, is the Christ, meaning Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah. Uh, Actually, if you were with us in Daniel, he's the son of man who comes in the clouds. Uh, He is this promised figure that all of Israel was waiting for at this time, who would come and rescue and redeem them. And John says, that's not me, (laughs) right away. Because uh, some people might be thinking, is this, is this really him? I mean, everybody seems to love this John the Baptist guy. And he says, no, that's, that's not me. Right away. Well, then, are you Elijah? And you might ask, well, why would they think he's Elijah? Because there was a prophecy that said that before this Messiah comes, there's going to be Elijah, the prophet, who will come back and prepare the way for Jesus to come. Uh, so John says here, nope. Not me, not Elijah. Uh, In a sense, however, he's wrong, which is a bold thing to say, right? That John the Baptist is wrong, uh, and I'm right, because Jesus said he's wrong. That's how I know. Jesus said, not that he is Elijah, but that Matthew 11, 14, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Matthew 17, 12, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, meaning John the Baptist. So the idea is not that he is actually Elijah, but that he fulfills the role of Elijah to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. So John is somewhat right, but what he wants to do is point people away from himself. That's why he's saying, no, not not Elijah. Uh, And then this prophet, are you the prophet? And he answers, no. Notice his answers get shorter and shorter, right? So first, I'm not the Christ, I am not, and then just, no, no, I'm not who you think I am. Uh, Who is this prophet? Uh, There's a a lot of uh, different debates were around about who this prophet was, uh, but Deuteronomy 18.15 said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, Moses said, from your brothers. So a lot of people believe this prophet that's going to be risen up is actually the Messiah. He's the same as the Messiah. I think that's right. Uh, John is saying, that's not me. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the Christ. I'm not even actually Elijah. Although he comes in the spirit of Elijah. He wants to constantly point people away from himself. I'm just a man. I'm just a human being and no more. I'm a sinner even, John would say. There's no spiritual water here. (laughs) This is not the oasis. You're looking in the wrong place. Uh, That's not who I am. 
In fact, even friends, angels do this. You see this in the Bible. Uh, we love angels, and I notice we've got a nice angel floating around here for our, our nativity scene here. Um, angels do this. Well, people will bow down to an angel, and you know what the angels always do? Don't do that. <laughs> Don't bow down to me. That's what the angel always says. I'm just a creature, believe it or not. I may be spiritual, and I may be different than human beings, but I'm still just something God has made. Don't bow to me. Bow only to God. They point away from themselves and towards God. Another example of this, I think, is Mary. Uh, and some people make such a big deal about Mary. Mary's an amazing woman. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, truly amazing example. Uh, but people make such a big deal of Mary. Some people believe in, even really cross the line into a form of worshiping Mary. And if you read anything about Mary in the Bible, that is the last thing in the world she would want you to do. <laughs> She would say, absolutely not. He is my Savior. And I get to be chosen as a servant for Him. She would want to do the same thing that John the Baptist is doing. Look to Jesus. Not to me. John is not interested in the fame. <laughs> you know, fame is one of those things that, that sounds great until you have it. Right? Because anyone that has fame, people that have fame, they hate it. They don't like it at all. People who are famous say, I don't like them. People come around all the time, paparazzi, they follow me around, they're taking pictures, I have no privacy, I can't even go to the store. It's a miserable type of life. Fame doesn't, uh, doesn't appeal to John in the least. In fact, people who are constantly pointing at themselves, I think they end up in big trouble with the Lord, really. Think of from Daniel Nebuchadnezzar. Look at all of Babylon, which my own hand has made. And he loses his mind for seven years. This is a danger with that type of pride. I, uh, I think of uh, Michael Jordan. I was a huge Michael Jordan fan growing up. He was sort of my, my hero. I wanted to be like Mike. Uh, anyone else want to be like Mike growing up? Or before? I know it's the age. Yeah, we got one hand at least. So probably... Probably a different generation for most of you guys, right? But uh, I learned this about Jordan. I, I didn't realize he was such kind of a cocky, arrogant guy. And uh, that's just reality. I don't mean to slander him. But Jordan uh, had a private security team, has a private security team that travels with him wherever he goes. And according to an ESPN article, uh, all the people in his inner circle have secret code names. You know what Jordan's is? Yahweh. The Hebrew name for God. I thought, oof. Mike. Change that name. <laughs> that type of pride looking to yourself usually, almost always comes uh, before a fall. Like John, friends, it's our job to point people away from ourselves. Point people away from ourselves. We can't save anyone from sin. We can't give them life to the full. Uh, we can't give people happiness And friends, we can also point them away from other unsatisfying sources. People look to a guru or a rabbi or a pastor or a priest or some famous author or a theologian or a politician and think that's where all happiness is going to come from in life and he's going to be my savior or she's going to be my savior or whatnot. And again, there's no water there. And it's not just people, it's stuff, right? People look to... Other sources, other empty sources for happiness and joy and spiritual satisfaction. Take money, for example. You know, they, they, people think, if I just had the winning Powerball ticket, <laughs> I would be happy for the rest of my life. Actually, you will not be. Uh, they've done uh, studies on this. Uh, um, I remember reading in uh, 
Psychology 101, they did a study called The Pursuit of Happiness. I think the guy's name is David Myers, was the author. And uh, basically, this is what they found. If you won the Powerball today, you would be happy for a month or six months, maybe even a year, all right, because that's a lot, right? But you know what would happen eventually? You would fall back into the same level of happiness you are now because money is just not the determinative factor for happiness. If you look at rich people, they're no more happy than poor people. Poor people are no more happy than rich people either. It's just not the deciding factor for happiness. Health is the same thing. People think, well, if I was more healthy, then I would be happy. Or if someone thinks, if I lose my health, then I would be unhappy. Found out that's actually not the source of happiness either. Now, they take people who, have, who are paralyzed or have various different uh, long-term health uh, problems. They're no less happy than anyone else who is completely healthy. It's not the deciding factor. People turn to drugs and alcohol thinking that's where they're going to find happy. Well, they'll be happy maybe for an hour or two and that's it. Or marriage, you know, if I just had a strong, healthy marriage, that would make everything better. Doesn't work that way either. Marriage is not the source. Um, I, uh, I learned this from my parents, but uh, I love God more than my wife. I don't know if that's surprising for anybody. It's not surprising to her because she loves God more than me. So it, it works out both ways. But here's the neat thing about it. You might say, I, I don't love anybody. I shouldn't love anybody more than your, your, your spouse. That's supposed to be the person you love the most in this world and nobody else more than your spouse. But here's the neat thing, friends. When you love the Lord more than your spouse, you don't love your spouse less. Actually, what happens is loving the Lord first increases your capacity to love. <laughs> And actually enables you to love your spouse more than you would if you put them first. Because your spouse is not a good idol. (laughs) You can love them more than you ever could without putting God first. Friends, we point people away from ourselves. We point people away from other empty sources. John does not want the focus on himself. I am not the Christ. I am not the prophet. He points people, as we see in verses 22 to 23, to Jesus. Point people to Jesus by being a witness of the gospel. So they said to him, who are you? Uh, Now that it's clarified, John, who you're not, you've been very good about telling us who you're not, well, who are you then? (laughs) Because the Sanhedrin has sent us, and we don't want to go back to them and say, we talked to John, and we have no real answer to who he is. So give us some type of answer so that when we go back, uh, we at least have an answer to, to all of these people. And this is John's answer. He says, I am a voice. That's it. I'm a voice. I'm a voice that's crying out in the wilderness. That's who I am. I'm acting as a witness. I'm acting as one who testifies. In fact, again and again throughout this chapter, I think it's like five times, he called, John is called a witness or one who is witnessing, one who is testifying. And what's he testifying? As he describes it from Isaiah, make straight the way of the Lord. In Isaiah 40, where this quote comes from, talks about the coming of the Lord and that uh, there's a calling to make straight the way of the Lord. And John's saying, that's just me. Just like the prophet Isaiah saying, get ready. Because he's coming. I'm just pointing people to him. When the Lord comes, that's where your focus should be. Friends, he's a witness. Uh, what is the job of a witness when you think about it? A witness is someone first who has seen or experienced something important. That's what a witness is, right? If you've witnessed a crime... You've seen something important. You've you've observed it. 
You've experienced it. Something that you yourself have, have, have had a, a play in by either seeing it or experiencing it. Witnessing an event. Like you, some of the, many of you witnessed the full eclipse that we had not too long ago. You, you were one who seen it, in a sense experienced it. But that, that's not all a witness is. There's more to it, right? A witness is someone who then tells others about what they've seen and experienced. It's not enough just to say you've seen it, you've witnessed it. You've, now you are a witness, one who actually speaks up about it and tells others what this very thing is. Like a witness in court. Uh, I remember I, uh, I got called for jury duty. Uh, not, that was a couple years ago. And uh, what an incredible experience that was. And I mean that. I'm not even saying that sarcastically. I actually, there was actually some jury tampering that went on. Um, on me, actually, and I had to report that to the judge, and it's just a wacky, uh, crazy experience, but it was an assault charge, and uh, these this sweet old couple, next door neighbors to the man that was assaulted, witnessed the whole thing. <laughs> the man, they were both looking out the window when this assault t- uh, occurred, assault occurred, and they saw the whole thing take place, and they came to the court, and they said, this is what I saw, and they witnessed in front of the whole jury. Well, that pretty much sealed the case for us, because they had no ulterior motive. Uh, they were witnesses. They're someone who has seen and experienced something and now are telling us about it. Now, what am I going getting at? John has witnessed Jesus. How does he witness him? I don't know. Internally, God has spoken to him. God has made clear to him uh, who Jesus is. He knows that he's coming. Also, the upcoming baptism, which we'll look at later on, Lord willing. Uh, but he, he knows who Jesus is. He's experienced who he is as the Savior. But more than that, now he acts as a witness who talks about it and tells others about it, that they might know who Jesus really is. So are you and I, are we witnesses for Jesus? That's, I think, we can learn here from John's example. Have you first experienced a relationship with him? Have you seen him? Not with your physical eyes, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, but have you experienced him? Is it something that you personally have taken part in? Do you know him? When we talk about, do you know God? Uh, We don't mean, do you know that there is a God? Uh, Do you know certain facts about God? Uh, There are people who study theology and religion their whole life and don't believe in God. I mean, don't believe, believe in God. They, They just study, understand ideas about him. But do you know him? In relationship. I'll give you an example. This is how the Bible sorry, uses this word no. I uh, uses it like this. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Now that's not just head knowledge. <laughs> There's something deeper going on there with that idea of knowledge. He knew his wife intimately. He knew her relationally. He knew her closely. When it talks about us knowing God, do we know him relationally? Do we know him intimately? Do we know him? Personally, Friends, uh, this is what I'm looking for as a pastor in people's lives. Uh, looking for evidence of a relationship with God. It's great to come to church. It's great to do all the church things and do good deeds and all that. Those are all good. But um, what you're looking for is, does this person have a, a relationship with God? Do they talk to Him? Do they hear from Him in His Word? Are they walking with God? A witness is one first who has experienced God, but don't stop there. It's someone then who tells others about it. Someone who is a voice. Someone who speaks up and points people to Jesus. I like what C.S. Lewis said, Don't shine so others can see you. Shine so that through you 
others can see him. That's our goal as a witness. And hopefully, friends, that's what our church is doing. Uh, By our ministries, uh, we are hopefully pointing people to Jesus. By our love for the hungry and the poor and the open hearts meal, or our love for anyone who walks in the door throughout the week or here on Sunday morning, we are pointing people to Jesus. We're being witnesses for Him. And even by our love for one another. What did Jesus say? It's by your love that all men will know that you're my disciples. It's the way we treat each other that in a sense points people to Jesus as well. Welcoming and serving others. And 24 to 28, one last thing. Let baptisms and other church stuff point people to Jesus as well. So they have a question for John. Uh, It says here in verse 24, they were sent from the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin was made up of priests and Pharisees, so that's who sent them to him. And this is a question specifically from the Pharisees' side of the Sanhedrin. And they say, well, why are you baptizing them? If you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, then why are you out here baptizing all of Israel so that they're coming out to you and then and getting baptized. Now what is baptism? Baptism uh, was not something that John created. It actually existed before him. And it was used for those who were converting to Judaism. So if you were a Gentile, Greek, or whatever, and you wanted to become Jewish, in a sense, or join uh, the world of Judaism, you would be baptized as a sign that you're coming to uh, Judaism. And you didn't have anyone baptize you, you would do it yourself. It was self-administered. You'd kind of get into the water, you'd uh, do it as a sign of your conversion, and then you'd become Jewish. Well, John is doing it very differently here. Uh, first of all, he's administering it, he's baptizing people, uh, and he's doing it to those who are already Jewish. <laughs> and he's doing it as a sign of their repentance. In a sense, your sin has separated you from God. It's time to repent, be converted, and restored. And getting ready for the coming of Jesus. Jesus uh, John's answer to them is, I'm just baptizing with water. And water is just a symbol. That's all it is. It's just water. But the one who stands among you, Jesus is already born. As we said, he's only a few months younger than John uh, in terms of earthly years. One you don't know, hasn't been revealed yet. He comes after me and he is so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down and to untie his shoes. In fact, a servant was, was, asked not to, uh, was, a, was not asked to actually untie his master's shoes. They could be basically given any responsibility or duty, but that was below them. To have to wash their, their, disciples, their, their master's feet, or here, he says, to untie sh- shoes. He's saying, look, I'm just using a symbol, water. But I'm talking about one who has a reality that is far greater than what I symbolize. Sorry, this thing is killing me here. Baptism is good, but Jesus is better. That's what he's getting at, friends. Uh, baptism was good. Baptism, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was an outward mark of change. It was an outward mark of, of, cha- of turning around and going in a new direction. It was a way of preparing people for the coming of Jesus. It was preparing them for this kingdom. A baptism by itself is sort of neutral. It could be good or bad, but he uses it as a good because he points people to Jesus Through his baptism. Uh, Friends, I think a lot of church things are like this. They can be good. (laughs) And they can be bad. uh, But by themselves, they're sort of neutral. um, Depending on whether they point people to Jesus. Uh, They can be actually a distraction from Jesus. They can be an idol. They can be something that we focus on instead of Jesus. And actually be something that was supposed to be good. And becomes something that's evil. The point is, does it point people to Jesus? Jesus is the fulfillment 
of all that these things are meant to point to. I like John Piper tells this story briefly. Here's an Advent illustration for kids. He says, and those of us who used to be, uh, who used to be kids and remember what it was like. Suppose you and your mom get separated in the grocery store. And you start to get scared and panic and don't know which way to go. And you run to the end of an aisle. And just before you start to cry, you see a shadow on the floor at the end of the aisle that looks just like your mom. It makes you really happy. And you feel hope. But which is better? The happiness of seeing the shadow or having your mom step around the corner and it's really her? That's the way it is when Jesus comes to be our high priest. That's what Christmas is. Christmas is the replacement of shadows with the real thing. It's all these other things we do. Hopefully they point us more and more so to Jesus. Baptism and other church stuff point us to the reality, which is Jesus. Hopefully your baptism <laughs> helped point you to Jesus. That it wasn't, it wasn't just a ceremony that you went through thinking this somehow saved you but that it was an outward sign of Jesus' work, that you are transformed, that your hope is in Him. And other things we do, I hope communion every month that we do is not just a ritual that we do and we think it somehow makes us better or somehow uh, gives, puts some spiritual hope in the actual elements. Hopefully it's something that points us more and more so to Jesus. I hope our music on Sunday mornings, I know this is Pastor Mike's intention, that our music is not there to just make us like music. <laughs> To enjoy the music in and of itself, but actually points us to Jesus. I hope our building, this beautiful building that we are blessed with, I hope it helps us point people to Jesus. I hope all of our ministries, our community groups, and our meal, and everything that we do here as a church, and even our missionaries who are out there on the other side of the world, helping people and serving people, I hope all of it is there ultimately to point people to Jesus. I hope Christmas this year and every year, Point people to Jesus. That all these things, trees, like the Christmas tree we have here. I, I remember a couple years ago, someone gave me a real hard time about having a Christmas tree in church. Actually, he ended up leaving the church because of it. It was that big of a deal to him. Uh, but he said, you know, the Christmas trees are, 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 come from a pagan root. No pun intended. But uh, they come from a pagan background. And uh, we shouldn't have any, the church shouldn't have anything to do with them. And I think really the real question I would have for him is not what's the background of the tree, but what is the use of the tree now? Does it help us celebrate the birth of Jesus? Does it point us to Jesus? That's the real question. Pine trees never became evil because they were used for a different purpose years ago. What do we use it for? Does it point people to him? Candles and gifts and nativity sets and all these things, so they point people to Jesus. Friends, our calling here, I think as we learn from John the Baptist, is to point people to Jesus who shows us God. He's where we find grace and truth. We point people away from ourselves where there is no water, spiritually. We act as witnesses, a voice for Him. And we seek to let other things point to him as well. I love Christmas. Hopefully you love Christmas as well. I love the gifts. I love Christian, uh, Christmas music. I love the decorations. And hopefully, friends, it's just one more opportunity for us to point one another to the Lord Jesus. Let's make sure we do that this Christmas, that we point one another to him. Would you pray with me?
Well, our gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the example of John the Baptist, who, like we said in the outset of this sermon, would not want us to focus on him personally, but rather to look to his example of pointing people to the Lord Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would be with us, that we would look to you as the source of grace and truth, that we would find our true joy and happiness in you. And we wouldn't end there, Lord, as witnesses who have experienced this relationship with you, as those who know you, that we would point others there as well. Help us to do that, Lord, not only for Christmas, but all year round as your people, until Christ returns or until you call us from this world to be with you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.